Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Thanks for joining us. As our lives become ever more connected, globalized, and intrinsically linked, there's a revolution brewing to ensure we can step forward confidently to embrace the world we find ourselves in. Bring together leaders, lawmakers, and lawbreakers, we will dissect how trust is established, shared, and challenged as we enter the next great technological revolution. When I'm not exploring trust with you, I'm helping unlock the full potential of drones through trust as CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security. And for today's conversation, we're bringing together insights from an inc- just an absolutely incredible uh, human being and somebody with an incredible amount of experience, both in the uh, government sector as well now as bringing that into the private sector. And I'm joined by Vice Admiral Peter Neffinger, who's the Vice Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard as well as the TSA Administrator. Peter joins us here with over 36 years of government experience and has an incredible perspective on leadership and some really interesting perspectives on how we can unlock leaders throughout the organization and really transfer down that leadership and share it across uh, across organizations, both within the private and the public sector. So, Peter, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's great to have you. Luke, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So, Peter, just to start out here, you have this. You have this background as uh, vice commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. And you're a vice admiral in that position. Can you share a little bit about what is what does a vice commandant do for our listeners? Well, the vice commandant, for those who don't know, is the is the the second in command of the Coast Guard. So that's the vice service chief, and uh, and and is typically um, the one of the last assignments you hold. In my case, it was the last assignment I held in the Coast Guard. It was the culmination of my Coast Guard career. Uh, someone, someone joked that the vice commandant gets all the jobs that nobody else wants in the Coast Guard. <laughs> you know, the because uh, you're sitting right next to the to the to the person who actually runs the Coast Guard and gets all the fun work, and then anything that was easy was taken care of below you. So, uh, as one a good friend of mine once called it, he said, "Welcome to the office of suck." But uh, <laughs> but I, but I, I only say that half jokingly. It was uh, it was a great job. It was a real opportunity to to look in a very broad strategic way across the whole enterprise of the U.S. Coast Guard, which most people don't understand is really a globally uh, dispersed and a globally deployed organization. Uh, It is at all times a military service, at all times a law enforcement agency, and at all times a regulatory agency. And those those three hats that you wear all the time in the Coast Guard have you uh, working uh, in many far-flung places and in, in lots of different interesting mission areas. That, wow, that's incredible. So the Coast Guard, uh, something I find, find interesting about the Coast Guard is you're not just looking at protecting the U.S. coast, that, but you're really looking at the whole global a global picture here. We do. If you think about what the Coast Guard's uh, broad mission set, it's, it's about protecting the, the approaches. Well, I'll back up some. It's about protecting the ports and waterways of the United States, anything that could, could potentially pose harm to the U.S., by entering through those ports and waterways. It's about supporting the joint force. Uh, so we, we work with the, um, you know, the other four services of the Department of Defense. Uh, so we deploy with those, we serve jointly. I served in, in a number of joint tours in my career. Uh, so it's protecting the national, it's 
national defense issues, it's national sovereignty issues, it's projecting freedom of navigation um, uh, efforts around the world. Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's less provocative to have a Coast Guard cutter in the South China Sea, for example, than it is to have a Greyhull uh, naval vessel there. Uh, so we support the Navy, uh, we support the, um, uh, and its missions. And uh, more importantly, we, we work at capacity building globally. If you think about it, most countries of the world have navies that look more like a U.S. Coast Guard than they do a navy. And from that, I mean it from this perspective, they're interested in protecting their, their, their sovereign rights in their, in their territorial waters, uh, fisheries, uh, law enforcement, um, counter smuggling, and so forth. Uh, search and rescue is a, is a, is a big uh, component of, of most foreign navies' uh, responsibilities. They're not expeditionary. They're primarily, you know, designed to protect, as I said, those approaches and the coastal waters and the territorial seas. And so we, we do a fair amount of work globally working with these, these smaller navies around the world. And, um, and not just for capacity building, but also for, for partnerships. You know, we, we, we count on those other navies to, to assist us in, in fisheries law enforcement, in, in anti-counter-smuggling, uh, counter-migrant um, smuggling, and so on and so forth. It, it, uh, the, if you think of all the things that happen in the maritime, it's the last great commons of the world, and so you want a lot of friends out there when you're, when you're trying to protect those commons. Absolutely, and so when people talk about that, and they, when they talk about the ocean at large, it's very much considered this, uh, like this new frontier and kind of the wild, it's the final Wild West, as, as some have called, have called it. It's an incredible amount of responsibility on, on you, especially in the office of suck, right? The, where you're <laughs> yeah. doing everything that I, nobody I, else I, wants I'll re- to do. I'll regret having said that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a huge amount of responsibility, right? Uh, what, what does that look like, and how do you ensure that people can go out and explore the wa- those waterways and enter those ports and have that sense of safety that ultimately is required for them to know that pirates aren't going to come, uh, attack them, that people aren't going to, there's not going to be an attack and where the majority of our economy travels through. Well, you know, the wonderful thing about any military organization, and the Coast Guard is no exception in this, is that it, it's never reliant upon one individual to make things happen. Uh, you know, you, 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 you grow up in, in a team-focused environment and, and, and a mission-focused. I remember one of, the, one of the most interesting and impactful things that anybody ever said to me it was my first commanding officer. I was a brand-new ensign, just commissioned uh, and out of officer candidate school, and I was uh, assigned to my first unit. And, and part of that assignment had me sitting behind a desk for a period of time. Not, you know, I, I joined the Coast Guard to go to sea, and I find myself sitting behind a desk. And he came up to me at one point, and he said, you know, Ensign Neffinger, he said, we wake up every day, no matter what our job is in this outfit, we wake up every day where the mission starts. He said, so you're with that junior most person on the farthest flung vessel in our fleet, uh, because if, if that person fails, we all fail. That's where, the mission, that's where we make or break the mission. And it really, it really struck me. You know, I, I began to, really, to think of myself not as an individual who, who had some job that, that I may or may not have liked at any given point in my career, but as part of this, this big, you know, huge you know, bucket of capability, uh, people and, and material and, 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 and and you know ships and aircraft and so on and so forth, all focused on things that had to be done on behalf of the American public, and so so that's when it really dawned on me what it meant to be in public service and in military service that it's not about you, 
it's really about the mission that, that, that collectively you can do. So, so, so when I got to the point of, of being the vice commandant, uh, I had no concerns about whether or not people below, below me in the organization were going to do their job. In fact, I knew they'd do their job because, because I grew up with those folks for the 34 years preceding that. Uh, and, it, and it freed me to think about, from that level, what the commandant and I would sit down and think about is where do we take all this great capability and, and what direction do we, do we, do we steer it? Because we know that they're going to get the job done every day. Our, our thought, thought then was how do, you then, how do you then apply it in the best in the best possible way against the evolution of, of, of you know, the evolution of the, you know, use of the seas and the evolution in crime and the evolution in bad guys doing bad things and so on and so forth. So it's interesting when you talk about that because it sounds like what you're saying is that by you in the leadership position being able to trust not just others on your team but those in the layers and layers beneath you uh, in the organization that you're trusting them uh, that they're doing their job to a degree that then you can focus on something completely entirely different. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The, one of the things that was the, the, that you discover if, as you get more senior in any organization is at some point it, the organization no longer needs you to do the things you used to do. I mean, I, you know, I grew up doing operational work like every Coast Guard officer does, and I spent years at sea, and I spent a lot of time at, in, in shore commands, and I, and I worked in, as I said, I did, I did some joint tours, and you do fun stuff. You know, you're, you're, you're out, you're operating, you're, you're, you're out on ships, you're boarding vessels, you're you know, going, to, going to training schools and, and doing all the kinds of things that, that you join the, the military to do. At some point, you, get, you stop doing that. <laughs> you get senior enough, and, and most people just tell you to keep your hands off of the things that you're, that you're looking at as you're walking around uh, a ship. I remember that's when I was a brand-new one-star. I got on board a ship, and a chief petty officer jokingly looked at me and said, you know, Admiral, don't touch anything. <laughs> he said, it's been a long time since you've been out here. <laughs> and, uh, but that said— You were tempted, you though. <laughs> yeah, I was always— Yeah, I really was. Um, but that said, you know, what you discover is that— is that your job is to ensure that all of those people who still carry out the daily mission, who physically carry it out, who are out there operating around the front line of the organization, have the, have the training and the resources and the, and the direction they need to get it done. And so, so I, never, I never doubted that they would. The other thing that's really fascinating about um, a, a, a mission-focused organization like the Coast Guard is all of the acculturation, the, cr the critical component of any organization, if it wants to be successful in that respect, is, is that you have a strong underlying culture and that that culture inhabits everything that you do and, and is part of everything that you, that you say and that you live that culture. Uh, in, in the case of the Coast Guard, you could probably, you could probably you know, distill that culture to, its, to our motto. So we have a motto, Semper Paratus, which means always ready. Uh, and I, I used to joke that always ready is an obsession for the Coast Guard. It's not just a, it's just, just a motto, meaning. And so the always ready piece is a, is a two-word distillation of, of the entire culture of the Coast Guard, which is, you know, we have a strong bias for action and a strong bias for success. Uh, we're, you know, the, that's the always piece is the bias for action, and the ready is we're going to succeed at whatever it is we do. And, and that, as simple as it sounds, creates an entire foundation for how people look at things. You, you don't want to let anybody down around you, and you don't want to let any part of the mission fail uh, because it's, an, it's, it's, it's as if the whole organization failed, if the mission failed. And what that then 
creates is, is a trust uh, from the very top to the very bottom. I, you, know, you never quite, yeah, you know, things get interpreted in different ways in every organization, but I never doubted that the junior most person in the Coast Guard knew first and foremost what it meant to, to succeed at a mission. They might not always do it well. You might have people who were more or less capable, but, but everybody had the same idea in mind. And, the, and an organization that has that sort of a strong foundation can rapidly weed out people who, aren't, who don't fit in. You know, they'll might, they might do one assignment and, and, or one, one, one enlistment and get out or, or whatever. Uh, but um, so, so it's really exciting to be part of that. And, and for your listeners, what I would talk about, what I would ask them to think about is, is as, it, as you look at your own companies, your own organizations, is think about the culture that you're building. And you have to be really deliberate about it. You know, if you think about um, the fact that on average, you know, about 60% of the of, of any military service turns over about every four to five years, you know, so, so you have a completely new uh, service um, after about, you know, after about half a decade or so. And by say completely new, all the junior people are, are new, you know, very few people, relatively speaking, stay for an entire career. So how do you maintain an organization with the same culture when you just have all these new people all the time? You know, Coast Guard was formed in 1790. So how do you how do you how do you maintain a culture for for you know well over 200 years? It, it, you you you're deliberate about it. You build it. Now we build it in, in 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 things like boot camp and and officer candidate school and the Coast Guard Academy and and, and in every training session. Every time you get promoted, you you kind of remind people what the core values are of the Coast Guard: honor, respect, devotion to duty. And you talk about being always ready. And you sing songs and you do all the things that that make you feel part of something that's more important than you. And, and then you remind people that, that, that the, the mission always comes first, so that you, so that you say, look, you, you, yes, it's about you, and that if you're not good at what you do, then you're going to, you're going to pull the, the, the capability down, but it's not about you at all. It's really about what we all do together. So anyways, I think that, that um, uh, in, in my mind, that's what made being the vice commandant, as much as I joked about it earlier, it was really one of the most enjoyable jobs I ever had because you get a chance to see all of that machinery working in a, in a really effective way. Yeah, you got a few clunkers every now and then. You know, every, or every organization does. But on whole, you watch this, this really you know, connected, you know, team-focused, mission-focused outfit um, with a strong sense of what it means to, to serve and, and all that other business, um, just go out and do things and do things really well. Wow. And it, that, it's incredible that the, that the Coast Guard has been able to maintain that culture over hundreds of years and really with a, with a high turnover rate, especially as uh, business leaders and entrepreneurs are listening uh, to this to think, Wow, it's so difficult to maintain a culture of with ten employees or a hundred or hundred thousand employees. But when you have so much, uh, so many new people coming in and people going out, uh, what what do you think is the way that you you mentioned some techniques there of uh, continuing to remind people what what that culture really is? Uh, but you also talked about how it's seen, and uh, I'm curious, how do you see that uh, from a leader? How do you show that culture? I think it's, it makes sense and is easy to uh, demand it from, uh, from those in the organization, but how do you as a leader show that culture that you want to see? Yes, yeah, so how do you live the thing that you, that you claim is important? Well, so 
if you say that that it's important to always be ready, then then you better always be ready. You know, first of all, uh, you better you better train people appropriately, provide the tools for people to be ready, provide the tools for. If you say it's important that we product that we conduct the mission, uh, but yet you fail to send me off to training. You know, I say, you know, I really, I really need to get off to do this training. I don't have time to send you to training. I got, you, you got too much to do right here. So, so there's lots of little subtle ways in which, and not so subtle ways in which an organization can say, I know that's what we say, but it's not what we do around here. So, so if you have a vision or a mission statement, figure out whether you're actually paying attention to it. Are you really doing those things? Uh, you know, people have a huge, huge, very attuned radar for for statements that don't match up in an organization. You know, it's, so if you want to build a culture, first of all, you better actually believe in the culture that you want to build. So if you're the Marine Corps, if you say it's the few and the proud, the Marines, well then you better do things that, that make you feel as if you've differentiated yourself in some way. If you say we care about, I, you know, years ago I remember there was a, um, I picked up a brochure for another government agency, and I won't tell you which one it was, but, <laughs> but I picked it up, and it was a, a, a new incoming, it wasn't the Coast Guard, and it wasn't a military service, but a new incoming head of that agency had, had written down, it was a him, he, he'd written down his, his priorities for what was most important. And it had a whole, whole series of things, probably 20 or 25 different things. You know, here's what I believe in. The number 15, I'll never forget this, number 15 was put people first. And, and I always thought that was just, somebody, somebody should have at least put it up at the top of the list, but it said, put people first. And, and, and I, I'm almost certain that there was, that, that it was, it was a statement about whether or not that individual really did put people first. So that, if it jumped out at me, I guarantee you it jumped out at everybody who picked up that, that, that brochure. So if I say that honor, respect, and devotion to duty is important, but, um, but I'm cutting corners or I'm failing to uphold standards or I'm allowing people to get away with things, then suddenly honor, respect, devotion to duty isn't really as important as just getting by. Or if I look like I'm taking credit for things that other people are doing, which, which we know happens, um, then, then maybe I really am not all the things I claim to be. Uh, if, I, if I say it's really important that we, you know, that we, that we perform effectively, but I'm not giving you the tools you need to do it, despite the, the times that you've told me I don't have the tools I need to do it, then, then the mission isn't as important as, um, as a bottom line kind of issue. So, um, there, I mean, there's lots of little, little things that you can do on a daily basis, but I would say that if you have, if you, if you want to build an organization of committed, team-focused, caring people, well, then reward teams for what they do. Uh, reward Reward mission outcome based upon team performance as opposed to individual performance. Uh, yes, we reward individual performance in the military, but that individual performance almost invariably, whenever somebody gets an award in the military, you'll hear that the first, the, one of the first things they'll say if they have a chance to speak is, look, I, I didn't earn this. Uh, this really belongs to everybody who I worked with. And, and it's almost embarrassing a lot of times for people in the military to get a personal award because that personal award feels like it's slighting all those people that you know were part of the same thing. Nobody ever does it by themselves. And so, so reward the behavior that you claim to care about, and that will build the culture that you want to build uh, as you go forward. If, if instead of saying, if you say team matters, but yet you're, you're, you're rewarding behavior that is dysfunctional within a team, 
you know, somebody, somebody taking all the credit, somebody working for themselves, somebody not, not working with their teammates, but, 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 but doing their own thing might be good stuff. Might, they might produce really good things. But if you reward that, then that's the kind of thing that, that people will happen. And also recognize that as a, as a leader, especially if you're a CEO, you're a COO, you're in the C-suite, you're a vice president, you're an entrepreneur, you're starting a business, the people around you will watch you to determine what to do. You know, every leader casts a shadow, and in that shadow is all sorts of information about, about how I'm supposed to act in this outfit. You know, what's really important to me? You know, if I go to, a, if I go to training in the, in the military and they tell me, you do things A, B, C, and D, and I come out and, and, uh, and my, uh, my supervisor says, yeah, I know what they told you, but that's not what we do here. You know, you got to do this, this, and this. Well, then now I find out what really matters, and I stop paying attention to whatever the organization told me to pay attention to. So think about the shadow you cast. Think about the information that you send inside that shadow, and then, and then think about the permissions that that gives people because the other thing that leadership is, it does is it provides permission, and that permission can, can have a real positive effect. You know, work together, perform this mission. I will reward you if you fail, but you fail doing the best you possibly can. I'm not going to punish you, all those kinds of things. And then, you, and then you turn around and actually don't do that. Well, then the permission is, I will tell you that it's okay, but then I'm going to hammer you if you fail, or I'm going to hammer you if something goes wrong. Well, now you've given permission for people to start hammering other people and to take, and to take advantage of them. And if uh, so, so I think about the shadow you cast, the information in that shadow, and then the permissions that you give as a leader. It's really, and people really, 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 really pay attention to you when you're in a position of authority. You may not realize it, but they're watching everything you do, watching and interpreting, and Absolutely. making their own their own judging their own actions based off what they perceive you to be doing. Whether that's what you do, what you're actually doing, what you intend to mean that's by right. your actions, what that's. So as, as you look at that, I'm, I'm curious, we, we talk about leadership and we talk about how we can uh, empower your, your team and give permission for them to uh, be leaders themselves. As, vi- as uh, vice commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, the co- uh, over those 34 years, a lot happened in the United States from a s- national security perspective and from just a, uh, from oil spills and other disasters. How did you ensure that that culture continued even during those very difficult times as a country and especially when the focus was on the Coast Guard and on even you at times? Yeah, that's a good question, Luke. And there's a, there's a, there, there's a lot in there. Um, just as a way of background, you know, my career, I came in in 1981. So just on the, on the, 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 the downside of the drawdown after the Vietnam War uh, and at a time when when the U.S. military was not um, was not exceptionally well thought of, and, and what I mean by that is not that not that it, it didn't have respect, but that but that we were still going through some of the post-Vietnam trauma uh, of um, of the military. The but I benefited from that because it was a time when when all the services were were really rebuilding and really thinking again about what does it mean to be to be good to be to be part of something important to serve, to all those other things, all this, you know, how do we become once again, you know, the kinds of servants to the public that we, that we claim to have been? Uh, how do we get out of the, you know, the, 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 what was the real, like I said, the real trauma, the emotional trauma and the, 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 the institutional trauma of, of Vietnam? Um, long, uh, 
you know, terrible uh, conflict. I had an older brother that fought in Vietnam, and uh, and I remember, you know, how affected he was by by um, the, you know, all of the the distrust of of military service and and a lot of the a lot of the the weight of the political matters fell on the shoulders of of you know young kids that were over fighting a war they didn't ask to go to. Um, so, anyways, uh, so, but I, I, when I say I benefited from it, I benefited from that intense, you know, um, um, institutional introspection uh, that allowed you to really just take down to the, to the core of the institution and say, what matters to us? What matters? What matters about the people in the in the outfit? What matters about what we do? And and why why do we exist? And why do we exist to serve? Uh, and then I spent a lot of my career responding to crisis. That's what you do in the military. Uh, in the Coast Guard's case, it could be anything from a, a, a major catastrophe at sea, an oil spill, um, a ship collision, to natural disasters, to a war. And uh, Coast Guard's fought in every major war that every other service has ever fought in. And, uh, and typically, if you're in long enough, it's some combination of all of the above that, uh, that, you're, that you're involved in. And, uh, and so those crises uh, test the... Uh, test the the institutional culture. You know how good do, do we really do we really believe this? You'll find out in a crisis. You know I always tell people the one the wonderful thing about a crisis is uh, first and foremost uh, they all end, so that's nice. That's the nice part about it. <laughs> uh, but the fact that they come to an end means you have just a limited time during crisis to actually see the true nature of your organization, because a crisis will tell you what the real culture and what the real core identity of an organization is. It'll tell you whether people band together and, and work to help each other or whether everybody kind of runs to their own corners and takes care of themselves. It'll tell you whether they trust an organ, whether an organization is trusted, its leadership is trusted, or if, uh, if, it, if, it, if you think, I just got to figure out a way to survive this on my own. And, uh, and for me, the wonderful thing about the Coast Guard is I discovered that the, that the Coast Guard is at its best often in crisis, and the military services are at their best, because you find that, that actually that culture really matters. You really do care about each other, and you do really do want everybody to su- succeed, and you will protect each other from anything on the outside trying to, trying to keep you from succeeding and keeping you from doing the things that you need to do. So, so in... In, in a long answer to your question, I think that what, what, what worked for me was I actually found that I stopped worrying and, and fearing crisis situations. I, I, you, know, you begin to see it as kind of just a natural course of events. It's just a heightened form of the day-to-day things that you do. It's a lot more intense. It can be um, it can be much more traumatic for people. It can be very emotional if you're if you're responding to a major hurricane like Hurricane Katrina, or the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill, uh, which was which put you know a few hundred thousand people out of work for an extended period of time. It uh, it it wiped out the fisheries for an entire summer. It, it shut down the oil industry and it and it uh, and it followed only five years on the heels of Hurricane Katrina, which had which had devastated the city of New Orleans among uh, among others along the Gulf Coast and uh, so that's hard to see and it's really challenging to, to be part to, 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 to witness but it, it's it's also exciting to see what happens when people can be very focused in coming together and you can and, and the lessons you can learn about yourself you know every every big event like that surfaces um, 
systemic issues, even within even within your own organization. You learn things about yourself. You know, the, uh, I, I I make it sound as if the Coast Guard is the is is a perfect organization, and it's and, and no organization is. It has its issues, but but if you're tuned to what you learn in crisis, you can you can peel out all sorts of valuable information that can then make you that much better next time around. And you say, well, well, we learned something here. That didn't, didn't realize that that was an institutional problem, and uh, and you can fix it. So when I got to the vice commandant level, uh, and even my other um, um, flag officer assignments, were, you know, you you have an opportunity to not miss those lessons or to not let those lessons go past you you know we don't you want to you don't you don't just observe all these lessons we used to we used to joke that you know um if you're not careful you just observe lessons your whole career but you never actually learn them and you never incorporate them so we we always made it i love that point we (laughs) we said we said let's not observe some more lessons let's actually learn something from these and and incorporate that and make changes uh and then the other thing that that it allows you to do if you're smart is to listen to the people who are actually learning a lesson you know the the, the front of the organization always knows what's going on. You know, they may not have the big picture, but they got the picture about operationally what's happening. Um, you know, I probably learned that uh, in its, in its, in its uh, most direct and stark forms uh, when I went to TSA. And uh, for, uh, if you may recall, back in the, so I was nominated in um, April of 2015 by President Obama to, to run the TSA. So I, and I, I had it for the last couple of years, not quite two years of his, uh, the last two years of his administration. And shortly after I was nominated, uh, there was a classified report uh, of t- some testing that the D- DHS Inspector General had done on, you know, whether or not TSA could do the job it was supposed to do. Uh, the the, uh, the Inspector General typically does this in for operating organizations. They they'll send people out. In this case, it was a series of covert tests to determine whether. Um, these covert testers could get prohibited items through a checkpoint. And, um, and that and checkpoint being a, an airport. An airport checkpoint, right. So they were carrying, you know, fake explosives or, 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 or you know. You know uh, big shampoo weapons, bottles. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, big shampoo bottles. You know, so weapons and knives and things like that. You know, the, the kinds of things that you want to stop from getting through. Uh, again, this and that people I... want to know aren't going to be on the plane. Exactly. So the whole idea is, hey, does 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 the does the stuff that TSA put in place work? You know, do the do their policies, procedures, and equipment, and training, and all the other things stop bad things from getting through? And had you just arrived? I hadn't even taken over yet. I was nominated, but uh, but and I had I had gone through one nomination hearing, and I was going back to, for my second. So it was between my first nominees. TSA has two oversight committees. So if you're if you're nominated to be the TSA administrator, you have to be confirmed by two different Senate committees. So this was the uh, peak into what's what's awaiting you. <laughs> exactly. So the first, you know, I went through the first hearing, and and you know, TSA was uh, uh, unfortunately it was nobody's favorite agency, which I never quite understood. And I could that's a different set of discussions, <laughs> but I mean, because they really are protecting people. But I I get it. It was you know, and everybody made fun of TSA, and I heard all the jokes that everybody else heard, and I and. Um, and the like, but but I never thought of it as a as a as a failed agency. But this test report was leaked to um, uh, the news media, and and it went way public. And and you may some of you may recall that the, that for for an extended period of time in the spring and summer of 2015, uh, there were just news report after news report about how TSA had failed. And and the report had indicated that TSA had had failed in a in a fairly substantial way. So, 
so when I went to my second hearing, of course, that was the subject of the second hearing, and there was a <laughs> tremendous amount of pressure. So anything I thought I was going to be doing when I first took over TSA, uh, it was, was just consumed by uh, getting out of this crisis of confidence. And so what it really did was putting aside, you know, how accurate the tests were and how whether they were done in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a good way and all the other business, uh, the, the fact remains that, that things got through that shouldn't have gotten through. And so, so instead, what I found myself doing was, was thinking about what, when an organization fails in a big way, a very it's public t- way, in a, and in a very public way, really one, compromising. It creates, it, it creates a yeah. huge, a huge crisis in confidence. So, you know, as as I said at the time, you know, it, the public is willing to put up with this 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 frustration of going through security. I'll put it that way. Some people, it's pretty. It can be annoying. It can be. It can slow you down. It can be. It can be intrusive. You know, your 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 people are looking at your stuff. They're looking at you. They're touching you sometimes. So all those things are things human beings don't really like. But you're willing to put up with it if you think, okay, but it's protecting me and it's keeping bad stuff off the planes. But if you put up with all that and and you realize it doesn't even work, well, then that just that just finishes it. And uh, and there were so lots of calls. Destroys the trust. Completely destroyed the trust. And of course, there were a lot of calls for. Um, some going so far as to call for disbanding of the agency and, and the like. And so my first thought was, and I think that thinking back to, you know, my, my lessons out of crisis, I thought, you know, very few people get up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to do what I can not to do my job today. I'm, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to screw it up. You know, it might be one or two people like that in the world, but, but, you know, for the most part, you know, people who take an oath of office to serve this nation do so because they really care about it. You know, and in the case of TSA, those frontline officers, transportation security officers, TSOs, those are the uniform folks, you know, about, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30% of that workforce are former military. So I figure you don't just forget what it is to be a military member just because you put a different uniform on. So, so I was not inclined to just blame people first and foremost. So this goes back to this culture idea. You know, the first thing you say is if you care about people, but you come in and you start taking them out at the kneecaps, then, then suddenly you really don't care about people. So, so my first thought was, I got to go find out what they think. And, and so I, um, I went out to um, a local airport here, and, uh, and I sat down with a bunch of TSOs, these uniform security, the ones that you all make fun of all the time. And, uh, and, and I remember I went in a room with them. And this was, this was, again, before I got, before, so I've been through my two hearings now. I was waiting for actual confirmation. Uh, and and so the Senate hadn't yet voted on my nomination. But and I was just the hearings. real quick here, just I think this is quite incredible. Just that this is uh, this is what you thought to do. I mean, it's it's very easy for you. You could have easily just sat back, and during this time, you could have easily started coming up with your grand strategy of how you're going to make the previous person look ho- horrible, and how you're now taking reins and going to transform everything and working on your PR. You've been doing a lot of things, but you went to the people who actually are the face of the organization, the people who really promote that trust and who are really responsible for the day-to-day success of the organization. Well, you know, Lucas, it goes back to that that first commanding officer I had who said, if we fail, it's because we didn't support those people out in the front. You know, you wake up where the mission starts. And I I thought, you know, I got to go to wherever the mission is. 
And, and I really felt bad for those folks because they were taking it. I mean, you know, if you're in a suit back at headquarters, you, you can just kind of slink out of the building and nobody knows you work for TSA. And so, you know, and, that, and that's not a problem. It's, it's easy not to feel that pressure. But they faced it every single day. And, and I was certain that with the kind of public outcry there was, I, I, I can only imagine, you know, some of the comments that they were getting to their faces. Because uh, I knew what kind of comments that they were getting even before that happened. And so I thought, well... You know, at a minimum, I wanted to just go out and talk to, uh, you know, the people that are here locally. So I went over to um, uh, Reagan National Airport, DCA, and uh, and I I asked to meet with uh, some of the some of the the, the the uniformed officers, and and the um, uh, the management staff wanted to be in there too. And I said I said, look, I, I I really just want to meet with the people in the uniform. I said not not that I'm trying to hide anything from you, but I don't, I just don't I want to hear just what they think. And I'm not yet confirmed, so maybe they'll tell me they'll tell me the truth or maybe they'll at least be, you know, open with me. And I remember I went in that room and it was the you know, absolutely the surliest bunch I've ever seen. And I shouldn't <laughs> say surly, just the the most the, the, the you know skeptical, I think. Subdued, skeptical and mm-hmm. and maybe some surliness. Uh, not not nasty, don't get me wrong. I mean they were they were they were just but they were very quiet and uh, you know and I'm I probably did something like, you know, hey, I might be your new boss. You know, here I am, <laughs> and uh, and I said, so so talk to me about what what you think, you know, and 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 help me understand what you know what happened. Uh, now now this airport was not one of the ones that got tested, so I wasn't, you know, I I purposely did not want to pick an airport that had been one of the tested airports because I I figured feelings might be pretty raw and and emotions and um, and they and people might be really concerned about their their jobs. And uh, it's very empathetic of you. Well, and I just, I just know that, you know, I know how I would have felt if, uh, if somebody came out to me and was like, oh, here, here we go. This is the, now they're out to, to, to fire me. But, uh, but I said, um, and it was interesting. So one, one individual spoke up and said, you know, I, I, I could have told you what the results of those tests were even before they, they took them. He said, it happens all the time. He said, it doesn't mean we're bad at what we do. But he said, he said it's, a really, it's a really hard job, and we don't have – all the tools we need to do it, and some of the training um, is lacking. And, uh, and then this one interesting woman spoke up and said, and she'd been a TSO for a num- quite a number of years, um, and she spoke up and said, she said, you know, you're just like every other guy in a suit that comes in here. He, she said, you come in, you give us all this happy talk about how you care about me and, and you want to take care of us and the like, but this is the last time we'll ever see you. And then you're the first one to write my name on the front of a bus and just drive it right over top of me when something goes wrong. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I suppose I could have been put off by that, but, um, but I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't in a job yet. And, uh, and I, really, I really wanted to find out what the, what the kind of the mood was. Obviously, this is a small sample size. You don't know if that's the way everybody really feels. But I figured it was probably at least somewhat representative. And, uh, and I said to her, I said, well, what would what would change your mind about that? I said, so what, what would you need to see to feel something different? And, and to just said, be able to trust you as a, her, as a leader for them to embrace you. Yeah. Well, just, their, just what, would you, you, what would you need to, be, to see, to think that I wasn't going to just go drive a bus over you when something went wrong or that I wouldn't ever show up again. And, and essentially what she said was show up again. And she <laughs> said, come on back down here and, and you work, you work with me for a while down here. And uh, and I did that, and it was uh, it was fascinating what I learned. And so here's I just, what I learned. I want to I want to pause you just for a moment here. It's quite profound that uh, that this woman makes makes this offer to someone who's her you know her 
bosses, bosses, boss, uh, and then some to say, you know, if you really want to understand us, come and do the, do our job. If you really want to see what it's like, come do our job. And if you want us to trust you, then, then come <laughs> and, uh, and come and let us see that in person and kind of put your, uh, just let your actions show what you're saying. Yeah, well, you know, I think if you if you think about it, it's um it's a fair re- it's a fair request. Yeah, mm-hmm. you could have it, it didn't seem unusual. It. Well, no. but you know, it didn't seem unusual to me because that's how it happens in the in the in the in the Coast Guard. You know, you don't you don't do anything. Well, you don't ask anybody to do something you haven't at some point in your career had your fingers on too. Now, you, I mean, I wasn't I didn't do everything everybody in the Coast Guard does, but you you've you've been at that level working uh, you know throughout your career. So it seemed perfectly reasonable to me to say, stop complaining about the work I do until you understand the work I do. And you can't understand the work I do unless you come do the work I, I'm doing. Hmm. And, and, uh, and like I said, I, hadn't, I wasn't yet actually in the job. It was still before I took the job. But what I promised her was that, look, if I get this job, and I don't know if I will yet but, uh, because I'm waiting for them to vote on my name, but if I get this job, I'll, I'll come work with you for a while. And, uh, and you know, I think she said something like, I'll believe it when I see it. And, uh, and I thought, well, there you know, I got to do this. <laughs> so, so I remember when I first got to the to the office. You know, one of the things they, I said was, "Look, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out and work the front lines for a little bit." And a f- couple of people said, "What are you going to do that for?" <laughs> and I, I said, "Well, because I promised. <laughs> you know, that's the first yeah. thing. And and uh, and I don't want to. I don't. I know I got to travel through DCA a lot, and I'm going <laughs> to see that. I'm going to run into her sooner or later, and it's not going to be pretty if I'm not if I haven't shown up. So, so, so I think it's important for so. As an aside, you got to put yourself on the hook for things as a leader too. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to force yourself to do some things that might not even be comfortable for you. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't. It was uncomfortable to go someplace where I knew that people were going to look at me like, you know, like I didn't, like I wasn't that good at what I did or I wasn't competent. But that's okay. You know, it's, uh, it's, you know, if you. Like I told the other um, senior leaders in the in in the organization when I went there, I said, look, I. I know one thing, every one of us is in that uniform, whether, we're, whether we actually have to wear that uniform or not, because that's what the world sees when they see TSA. You know, that's, that is the face of this organization. In fact, it's, in many ways, it's the retail face of the United States government. There, there isn't a single organization, agency in the United States government that, that interacts with more people on a daily basis than the TSA. You know, in, at its, mm. you know when, if we come out of this pandemic, and we get back to normal travel, it's somewhere between two and a half and three million people a day that pass by a checkpoint. So that's a lot of people, you know. Even the post office doesn't, you know, doesn't talk to everybody they deliver mail to. So, so I said, when you have that, then that is who we are for everybody. If you say TSA to anybody, it doesn't, you can say, well, I, I work in the service <coughs> transportation part, or I work with mm-hmm. the I do, uh, I do the intelligence component of TSA, or I do whatever. TSA does a lot more than just what you see. But if you say TSA, that's what you are to everybody. I said, so if that's what we are, then you better go figure out what it is. And that's what I felt. I, fi- I figured I had to go figure out what it is. And, and, and if I said I cared about people, and I cared about finding out what went wrong, then you have to actually go show that you really do. Uh, and that's not to, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to, pat myself on the back as a great leader. I just, you just learn these little things about, you know, what it means to, to, to live the things you say, to demonstrate the things that you say are important. So that goes back to your question, what can you do for culture? Well, 
make promises to people and then keep your promises. And, uh, and if you make a mistake, own up to it and say, look, I made a mistake. You know, people make mistakes at every level. I mean, just because I made it to vice commandant doesn't mean I didn't do things that didn't make sense. And, and, and I used to always give, you know, explicit permission to people around me to correct me and to tell me when I'd done something that they disagreed with or that they had a problem with. I said, I want you to be, we're, we're going to be respectful to one another at all times. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, call each other. But if there's a problem, I said, your job, I mean, people's, Often, people's lives are literally at stake. And so I said, if people's lives are literally at stake, then, then I don't want to be responsible for someone losing their life. You know, your job is to make sure I don't do stupid things. And, uh, and, it, and I've always enjoyed that. And I had other bosses that told me that, I, you know, that wasn't like a Peter Neffinger thing I discovered on my own. It was what other people had said to me in my earlier career. And, uh, and I was always imp most impressed by the by the, 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 you know, my commanding officers and seniors and supervisors and others that would just tell you when they've made a mistake. They say, you know what? That was a really stupid thing I just did. Um, you know, Neffinger, what, what, would you, what would you do instead? You know, you're like, oh, is this, a, is this some kind of a test? You know? but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, uh, I thought it was really important, first of all, to live up to what I said to her. Uh, and more importantly, to go out and figure out what was going on and, and to ask them, say, hey, what... Why do you think this failed? I said, and I am really not looking to blame anybody. I said, I am, in fact, one of the things I told the, um, my staff, my senior staff, was nobody gets fired over this. I said, somebody may eventually have to go, but, but we're not just going to look for somebody to blame. We're going to go figure out what went wrong. Because when you have a, a failure of that magnitude, it's typically something else that's going on. You know, you, we, we, have, we, we have failed them. They didn't fail us. And it turns out we had failed them when you, you know, we had some training issues, we had some integration issues, we had some leadership issues, and we had some, some, um, some equipment issues. And, um, and all of those things, you know, when you, when you add them all up, turns out about, there were about 12 systemic issues that we, that we surfaced over the course of a few months. And, um, and so we just started tackling those one by one. But then, but we didn't tackle them just from a distance. You know, we engaged the entire workforce in tackling them and, uh, and, and built a, a kind of a new approach to it. You know, and it was, it, we did things like you know, take the oath of office again and then walk through that oath to explain why is that oath so important? You know, what, what does it mean to take an oath? And when you take an oath, why, wh what does it mean to solemnly swear? You know, these aren't just words that you just reflexively say because I want to get a paycheck. You actually, you, have to, you, you actually made a commitment to something, so let's talk about what that commitment means and, and, how, we, and how we build towards something better. Back it doesn't to happen overnight. mission-driven. Yeah, right. you know, so what you do, and it, and it starts slowly, you know, nobody, you can't argue that you fix it in, in a year or two years, you know, I, was, I wasn't there quite two years, but, uh, but you get people thinking about something other than just, how can I just survive this and get through it, and, uh, and I was really heartened to see uh, there really was a change, palpable change in the way people treated In the culture. PSA. Yeah, and the culture, too. Yeah, it was really, it was really important. So, I, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I really love thinking about what it takes to lead people. The other thing you do when you do that, by the way, is you unlock uh, what I really think is the most important component of this. You really unlock the creativity and the entrepreneurialism of an organization. And, and, and every time I say entrepreneurialism and I tell people I spent 36 years in government, they just laugh. But I, <laughs> I tell them, if you think about it, government at its best is the most entrepreneurial entity on the planet you know you can think about the the and obvious why is that? ones 
that's, well, that's I mean, so can, hard for people to see be, and to understand. Well, because it's because it's this it's this continual experiment in audacity. You know, yeah, we can figure out a way to just solve all these world's problems. You know, we want to build a road across the country. How hard could that be, right? You know, not only one road. We want to build a lot of roads across the country, and we're going to do it in the space of a decade. You know, we're just going to call it the national highway system. Well, that was a pretty audacious entrepreneurial enterprise. Think about the challenges associated with that. I mean, at every single level. It's, it's political, it's, it's physical, it's engineering, it's, um, it's structural, it's all those things that had to come together. And yet somehow it managed to happen. And we look at it as if it was natural. It, there wasn't anything natural, naturally occurring about that. Um, you know, maybe the most obvious one was the, the moonshot. That was one of the most audacious things you can imagine. Now, it was driven by a Cold War and a desire to, to get ahead of, 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 a, of a perceived enemy in the Soviet Union, a real enemy in the Soviet Union. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a pretty entrepreneurial adventure, if you think about it. It was like the, the, the ultimate startup, you know, <laughs> billions of dollars, and, uh, and we're just going to stick somebody on the moon. Why? Because, you know, because we can. And uh, so I really love this idea. And that's, those are the, the big, crazy examples. But at every little level, it takes a really creative, talented workforce to tackle the kinds of challenges that a government agency has to tackle. You know, when, they, when, when somebody starts the Environmental Protection Agency, um, what does that mean? What does it mean to, be, to protect the environment? You know, sounds good. But then, but then there are tens of millions of little ways in which that could be interpreted. If somebody says, protect our fisheries, that sounds easy because we look at how it's done now. But think about how, who was the first person to figure out, well, what does that mean? Well, how do you even know where they are? And how do you track them? And then how do we track the people who are fishing them? And how do we, how do we control the way in which they fish it? You know, what's the best means of, of determining legal catches versus illegal catches? How do we determine whether the fish are, are, are the kind of fish that could be caught or not the kind of fish that could be caught. You know, where, where are the zones that we have to protect? How do we determine what's protective about those zones? So all of these are really challenging, you know, entrepreneurial market-based problems. Um, the difference between government is it doesn't, it, it doesn't make money. <laughs> it, it takes money from others to do this, but, but, but we do it because it's, it's a... It's a, it would be the inefficiency in the market. The market's not going to take care of these things, but the market needs these things taken care of in order for, for a market to thrive. You, know, you, need, you need a commons that, that are cared for. So, so I love thinking about, um, you know, and, I, and I think if, if I were in your shoes, Luke, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur, a very successful one, and you've got this you know, really dynamic company that you've founded, um, that you'll, you would find people that you would hire in a second because they think the same way. They're motivated by different kinds of things. You know, they're motivated by public service as opposed to, um, you, know, um, 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 you know, a market uh, response. But it's, it's no different, and it's no different than creativity is no different. So, so I think that what I like about thinking about building strong culturally, you know, you know, based, you know, strong cultural foundations in, a, in an organization is then you unlock the ability of people to do things. Now, now they're not worried about themselves anymore and am I going to be okay? Are they going to yell at me? Am I going to get in trouble? Now they're just like, I can just go do things, you know? So in the, in the case of the Coast Guard, it was this bias for action. The other thing that that first commanding officer said to me once was, he goes, you know, Neffinger, the only thing that's ever going to get you in trouble with me is if you don't do something. He said, just go do stuff. He said, 
don't kill anybody in the process. And he goes, and don't kill yourself. But he said, <laughs> but, but, but go do things. He said, that's what we do. He said, we do stuff. And he said, sometimes we don't do it very well, and we learn, and we do it better next time. And, uh, and it just creates this, this way of thinking, you know what, I'm just going to try some things. And, uh, and that, to me, is what, at its base, what entrepreneurialism is. Let's try that, see how that works, you know? I'm smart, I've been trained, I've got capability, I've got tools, and I've got smart people all around me. We can figure this out. And, uh, and, and you do, you figure stuff out. And then once you do those things, don't just observe those lessons, but truly learn from them. Yes, incorporated in. Yeah, it's not, you don't want to, you don't want to just redo the same thing over and over again. You know, you, 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 you get smarter and you go, wow, let's not do that again. You know, or we learned something on that boarding or that, that, that evolution or that, um, you know, that um, flight plan or whatever we did. Uh, that we can incorporate into the, what we do. And sometimes it makes it all the way back into doctrine. And, and, and you say, look, that was good enough that we're going to build that into the way we train people and, uh, and make sure that, we, that we've trained them. But you don't ever want to lock down such that you can't allow that creativity to come out. Yeah, that, that, that makes so much sense. And, and when you talk about this entrepreneurial leadership, especially entrepreneurial leadership in government, I think uh, it's, it's a fascinating concept that uh, I think is relatively new. In thinking and how we can incorporate these principles, one of the, your the stories that you shared is this uh, kind of this customer developments that you did, and seeing that you as the leader, uh, the soon to be leader of the TSA, the the big top dog of the TSA, the one who goes before Congress, the TSA is going to go work the front lines and get people through security, uh, and seeing that as that is your that's your customer right there. And, and in that customer learning process, I'm curious, what, what did you really learn during that time where you were working the front line, moving people through security? Well, you know, I, I, I won't pretend that I became a good transportation security officer because that's a really hard job. And, and it's, it, I, I swear it's among the hardest jobs in the country because you've got to move people very quickly. You've got to rapidly assess, you know, um, uh, who they are, what they're carrying, what they're doing, and so forth, and you got and you got to get them through, and you got to make sure all the equipment's working properly and the like. But here's what I learned, and 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 I didn't expect to become good at that. You know, it's it's like saying if I if I sit in a helicopter once, I'm a I'm a helicopter pilot. That's just not going to happen. But but what you can learn is is first of all how you know how competent are the people around you. You can you can tell. I mean, you've been if you've been around for any length of time, you can tell whether people are engaged and excited and interested in what they're doing or they're just they're just, you know, radioing it in, dialing in the motions. And so the first thing I saw was really strong local teams. You know, these are people who actually who actually cared about what they did and they cared about one another. And I watched them help each other and so forth. So so the first thing I thought was, well, I don't think I have a personal problem here. Maybe I do in some other places, but these people seem to like each other, and they seem to be working closely together. And so that, then the next thing was I wanted to see you know, how, how, they, you know, how they interacted with the travelers that were coming through. And for the most part— The customers. It was, it, yeah, they, and they were very engaged. So I thought, I thought you know, this was really, it was really interesting for me. And plus, because I, I, I knew nothing about TSA except, except from my own personal experiences of going through security. And like everybody, I had formed you know, a stereotype vision of it. And I wanted, to, I wanted to dispel that. I thought, you know what, if I don't go out there and see it, that's the image I'll have about TSA. And I, w- I want to find out 
I want to, I want to get rid of that. And I want to start, I want to, I want to zero out and, 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 and do a, and do a reset on what I think about TSA. And the only way to do that is to go out and just hang out with the people doing it. And so I, I, I went to airport after airport after airport just to visit the front line. First of all, there, there were a lot, a lot of fun. I really like, I always like people on the front line because there, there's a, there's a funny sort of, um, um, cynicism about people who do operational work, and when I say cynicism, not not in a negative sense. They just have this. They just kind of have this, you know, kind of this fun, you know, kind of humorous view of the world. Uh, you know, you're dealing with lots of interesting challenges, and and you can imagine if you see, you know, a couple million people a day coming through checkpoints. Not everybody is normal coming through a checkpoint. Something always <laughs> happens. You know, you can't have that many interactions a day and not have something happen. Um, sometimes it makes it onto YouTube and sometimes it makes it onto the news and it's not so fun. But, but for the most part, some of the interactions are really touching. So here's a good example of one. I remember one, um, and this is a very touching interaction. Uh, I was at an airport. I watched a young boy come up and, and he, had, uh, he, was, he had a prosthetic limb. Uh, and he was a young child, maybe not more than 10 or 11 years old. And, and he was very nervous about, about coming through the checkpoint. And, um, and I don't know if it was his first visit through or not. Uh, but, uh, but I saw this transportation security officer, TSO, come up and say, let me see if I can help you get through. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, the, the young boy did not, he, was, he just didn't want to go through the metal detector. And, uh, and so the TSO pulls his pant leg up, and he's got a prosthetic leg. And he said, hmm. so what kind of leg you got? And, uh, and it just tr transformed the whole interaction. And uh, so I thought, you know, we got, we've got some people who they kind of get it. And so, we, so, so the, the key is to, is to take that mm. and, 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 make, and get that across the organization. You know, whatever drove, whatever drove that guy to show up at work in the morning and to be that kind of person is, is what you want to infect the rest of the workforce with. So how can you, how can you create a culture that, that creates that kind of viral you know, what's that shadow look like across the organization? And what's that permission look like across the organization? Permission to be nice, to take care of other people, to make it not about you, but to make it about, you know, the, the service you provide. So that was, that was exciting. That's why I like being out with the front line, because you, you can't see that unless you're out there. Um, you know, if you're, there's plenty of time to go sit in an office and deal with, the, you know, the, the policies and the hearings and the, and the budget and all the other stuff, but uh, but all that doesn't matter if it's not taking care of the people who are out there. So so if you've got a company, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, you're if you're if you're a um, you know if you're a, a, a software company, it's 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 your developers who are the most important people you have. Uh, you know, without them, you, you might be you might have been the original developer, but but if you've been around long enough to be successful as a company, then you've got people working for you, and now they're the ones that you have to succeed. But if but if it's still all about you and the company you built, well then at some point you'll just get they're just going to leave. They're going to go some. You might you might get a good product out even. It might even work for a while, you know. But uh, but at some point um, they're not invested in in the success because they're it's not about them. It's about your success. So 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 as you build your company, remember it's not your company anymore. It's everybody's company. Even if you started it, that's really hard to hear. I know if you if you're if you're the person that did it, if, and especially if your name's on something, you know. But uh, but 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 what you've really done is you've 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 extended that big um, umbrella of you over all these other people, and you've created this this something that's much bigger than you. That it 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 might carry your name forward or come or carry the thing that you created, 
but you know, I think of Bill Gates. You know, it, Microsoft is not Bill Gates anymore. Um, and and if he had if he had ever gotten to the point where he couldn't let go of it, well, then Microsoft wouldn't be what it is today. You know, it the company becomes it takes on a new life as it takes on new people. And then and then what you what you can do though is really shape the culture of that company so that when you inevitably pass along, it survives you and that and that culture lives on. You know, nobody who ever was in the original Coast Guard is alive today. Mm. But I but but I will tell you, I don't think it would look much different to them. Uh, it, you know, different obviously in terms of its capabilities and the like, but the culture wouldn't look any different. The Marine Corps culture wouldn't look different to a Marine of 70 years ago than it does right now. Um, they would just be envious of all the stuff they have, but uh, but but not different. So that's <laughs> that's such it's, it's such a poignant point here in that the that culture is really what y- you can give those who are early in a company can really give and instill in the company to ensure that the company uh, can live past who them right it, whoever if someone's starting a company they don't want the company to go as soon as they inevitably pass along whether that's from uh, from natural causes or because they leave the company right and whatever it is you want the company to continue to grow and continue to be successful uh, and and have those and that culture is the part that you can that the the company will keep even if they don't keep you. Yeah, no, I really like that. It, it, it's um, it, you know it, another way to think about it is your job is to is to is to care for, shepherd, protect, and grow so that so that it moves along into the future. Uh, it, you know, you, you only you get that you get to do that for a period of time. You know, we used to joke that you were, like those you know those moving walkways that you can stand on and you get to the towards the end and it says the moving walkway is coming to an end caution. I said, <laughs> well at some point your moving walkway comes to an end and and you got to hope that there's a whole line of people behind you mm. because if you haven't done the best you can to 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 take care of the organization to grow it to evolve it because organizations have to grow and evolve companies have to grow and evolve um, i mean there's the, the the past is littered with once phenomenally successful companies that failed to evolve with the times but it's also filled with companies that evolved successfully and 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 it's because it wasn't about i'll extend this thinking but i i, I you know it the more you don't make it about you, but to make it about the success of the team around you, the more you think of yourself as as someone who is there to to help grow the company, sustain the company, and and pass it off to the succeeding generations of people that have to that have to um, that that will carry it forward for you. You know that's why you know when you come into one of the things I the other thing I loved about the, the Coast Guard, and I and I always spend a lot of time talking about my former career, is you know the best commanding officers or the best people that held jobs were the ones who who enthusiastically held it, handed it off to the next person coming and said, you know, and, and I, I'll never forget one guy that I, I relieved of. I was taking over command of a, of a Coast Guard um, uh, unit, and uh, so I was relieving him, and he said, go find all the things I failed to take care of, he said, because I, there's a bunch of them out there. And, and I always thought that was a nice way of saying, you're not going to get everything done. It was a nice way of him saying to me, you're not going to get everything done. Do, do good things. Do the right things. Uh, but just know that there will always be some things that are that'll, left to be done, which is something that hopefully somebody behind you gets to take care of. And, uh, and, and it was no different when, when, I, when I went to TSA. And there was a lot that st- still 
could be could be done. There was a lot of work to do on culture. There's a lot more we could do to take care of people, including work on you know compensation and 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 other types and training and other things. Uh, but what you want to do is make sure that you 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 built enough of a foundation for somebody to come along and start doing those other things, you know, and say, thanks. Now I'll take it from here and see what I can do. It's remarkable. It's truly remarkable how that your career has unfolded from these uh, decades in the military service and how uh, it's, it seems like really the, you had this final kind of test of these, those last almost two years, uh, the TSA, which taking on a very complex and difficult role in helping uh, at a at a time when the TSA was uh, was arguably at the the most uh, criticized organization, uh, and taking it on and helping to transform it and bring it into the state that it is today, which is uh, which uh, just like any organization can continue to see improvement. I'm I'm curious how you've taken that and now you're in the, uh, the your private practice and you're uh, and we're in the state of COVID, where COVID is uh, ravaging the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and um, also upsetting how we travel, how we move, how we can trust one another and how we can trust transportation. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about the, the work that you're doing there as, as much as you're able to on just this, this fascinating world that we now live in where we need to be able to trust to be able to get on public transportation, to get on an aircraft. Yeah, this is a, this is a, a very challenging time, and 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 in some ways, the hard one of the hardest times to be. You know, if I put myself in your shoes, Luke, and you're you're running a company that, and you have to worry not just about the success of your company and and its and its and its future, but uh, but the the health and the safety of the people working for you, uh, your the health and safety of your customers, the ability to even interact with your customers. Uh, and a lot of that's tied to transportation. Most of my career was spent, obviously, in transportation. Uh, I still work in, uh, so I've got a, a, my own consulting business now, and I and I do some uh, fair amount of consulting work to to private and public sector um, companies that uh, private and publicly held companies. I meant um, uh, airport management groups and so forth in the transportation world, and and they're all struggling right now. Uh, you know the the the, the this pandemic really gutted the aviation industry. Uh, you know, right now, I think, I think I saw the latest numbers were TSA is up around 800,000 people came through um, checkpoints last week. That's significantly lower than the, the many millions that would have gone through a checkpoint in a week. If, you, if I said the average is about three million, two to three million a day. So, so it's a long way from from the healthy thing it used to be, and we're all reading stories about how the airlines are going to be um, potentially laying off or furloughing lots of people and um, and cutting more routes out. Uh, so, one of the other things I do is I have a, a fellowship at the Harvard School of Public Health. It's a non-resident fellowship, and um, and I, I it's in um, a, a program. It's actually a joint program of the School of Public Health and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard called the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, and it's a it's a it's a crisis leadership program. So. One of the reasons I think about a lot about leadership is I teach a lot about leadership in this in this program, and we've been looking at just that question. You know, how do you how do you first of all how how do we understand what does it mean? What is the risk associated with travel right now? How do you define that risk? And then how do you how do you communicate what that risk is in a way that has people confident that they trust that they can be safe enough to travel? And so part of that communicating that risk is understanding what. What, what can I do to protect myself? What are the mitigating factors? So we've been doing some work with 
airlines and manufacturers and others to look at, you know, what, how might you begin to think about um, creating, you know, first of all, just a reference for what, you know, what is it, what is it, what is COVID, you know, how is COVID really transmitted and what can I do to protect myself and so forth? You know, face masks and ventilation and disinfection and so forth. And then, and then what might you do to begin to, to regain the confidence of people in the traveling public that it's safe to travel. Uh, that's a challenging problem. It's, it's a long way to go, but, but it's, it's been exciting to work with, and it's, it's exciting to, to work with um, you know, really talented, capable people in the industry. You know, outside of TSA, the, the you know, airlines get a bad rap for um, a lot of um, um, how they um, – or people – People look at them sometimes in a very negative light. I think they're, you know, they, they don't have necessarily the highest approval ratings. But I will tell you, there's some really talented, capable people who really want things to, to work. I mean, they, they provide a valuable service. And no matter what you think of the airlines, uh, you might be one of the people that says, I don't like those guys. But, but you still need to use them to get places, you know. And, and those of us who are in the, in the business world still and rely on it, um, we miss the, what travel allowed us to do uh, in terms of our, our, our our professional lives, as well as um, what it allows you to do when you want to relax a little bit. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun to, to continue to work on that. But most of my efforts now are really focused on helping people think through crisis. You know, how do you get, if you're in crisis, how do you, how do you, how do you act effectively in crisis? How do you not, you know, go into crisis yourself so that you can't actually make things happen? How do you make good decisions in crisis? How do you take advantage of a crisis so that you can, you can and I don't mean that in, the, in that old cynical way about don't let a good crisis go to waste. What I mean is, how do you learn from a crisis? You know, it's going to happen. They always happen. Every, you know, crisis is, you know, having been mostly, most of my career responding to crisis, I, I think of crisis as more the norm than not. You know, and when you're not in crisis, it's just a matter of waiting for the next one to come along. Uh, is kind of how it's all been for me. So I, uh, I don't, I'm not as afraid of crisis as maybe I, I, I might have been many years ago. I, I mostly look at it as, I know it's going to happen. I know how, I know how stressed people are going to get, mm. and and your job is is to see whether you can help them. Help, help reduce their stress so that they can actually focus and become creative again. In a lot of ways, it's the same sort of culture building. You know, how do you say, first of all, you didn't make this happen, you know? It, it, you know unless one of you actually, you know, somehow snuck this virus out and started handing it out to people, um, it wasn't your fault that the virus happened. But now we get to fix it. Again, going back to my, to my Coast Guard days, you know, I remember... We had, a, we had a really, uh, this was in, I was stationed in Mobile, Alabama, and there was, um, uh, it was 19, this was about 1992, and there was um, a bad um, uh, train wreck, an Amtrak train, the Sunset Limited. Uh, you can look it up. It's the Amtrak Sunset Limited, uh, went into a bayou north of uh, Mobile, Alabama, killed 47 people um, mm, and wow. injured quite a few others. Uh, it was a it was a foggy night. It went off of a misaligned um, swing bridge and right into the bayou. It was a, a remote area of the bayou. Uh, it gets pretty remote, just north of there. A really tragic event. I remember um, uh, I was it was happened early in the morning, so I was, I was driving into the command center. Um, and I got there and uh, and there was a, a young um, officer just kind of walking around in circles. You know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Uh, first crisis, and and this this older chief petty officer, that's a senior enlisted person, came up to him and said, you know, Mister, and I won't, so I'll, I'll make up a name, Mister Jones. You know, you have to, um, um, you know, 
you didn't make this happen, he said, but you get to make it better today, he said. So let's go make it better. And that's all it took to kind of snap that person into, ah, okay. And so I always try to help people think, like even, even if you're in the midst of trying to figure out what do I do as my, as I, my, my, my revenue has dropped and, my, and, uh, and I've got to lay off people, that's really bad. It's awful, and there's nothing that makes it better. But it doesn't get better if you're in if you're in crisis too. It gets better if you say, "Okay, we didn't make this happen, but we're going to try to we're going to try to make it. We're going to try to make it better. We're going to try to survive." And then and then you work at at the really hard work of making it better. And it doesn't always get better fast. And some people don't survive and all that kind of stuff. But you can, but you can always try. So that's how I that's why I think of 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 you know um, the current situation. I, I think how. You know, what do we do, given that it's happened? I can't control that. I, I try not to get too excited about things I have no control over, but, but I can't control how I react to it. I still have agency. I can still do things. And, uh, and, and what I try to do is things that, that, that matter for others. And so you can sit down with your workforce and you can think about, well, how, how can I protect as many of these jobs as possible? What might that look like? What can I, what can I sacrifice in order to make that happen? And at some point, it might be you get to a point where you say, "I, I can't do it," but, but it doesn't mean that 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 it doesn't even mean all is lost. It just means that that, you know, you have to evolve to whatever comes next. So so much wisdom packed in there, and and with what you've shared with us today, I'm I'm curious. Just in our in our final moments together, Peter, uh, do you have any other uh, any other pieces that you think uh, that we need to hear that you want to ensure that people can really grasp and what leadership means and how they can ensure that trust is built with their teams as well as with those, everyone who them is, they serve. Well, I, I, it goes back to, I think maybe a little bit about what we talked about earlier. I, um, I, you know, I like, I think that the great thing about being in a, in a position of leadership. And so if you're, you know, if, if you're, if the people listening to this podcast are, you know, in, in senior positions, or even if you're not in a senior position, because even when I was the most junior person in the room, I always felt like I had the ability to, to have an influence on something. So, but, but at any level, first of all, give yourself permission to be creative and give yourself permission to take care of other people, you know? Uh, lose your ego. You gotta have a little ego, but I mean, when I say lose your ego, don't make it all about you, you know? Because if you make it all about you, then 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 sooner or later, nobody's going to be there when you need them. So make it about the other person. You know, if you look to the person next to you and say, how do I make that person succeed? Then, then they will succeed, and you'll succeed. So that's the first thing is, 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 you know, think about what you bring as part of a larger, as a larger effort, and think about mission. That's the most important thing. Second thing is if, when you get in a position where you can actually take care of other people, then give them permission to be creative too. And creative in ways that maybe you aren't. Don't you know? I, I never worried about somebody looking better than me because I figured, well, you know, I know I have I have my assignment. I'm good. You know, I've got my rank. They're not going to take that away from me. Uh, I, you give people, and, and if you're the CEO of the company and you've got some super brilliant person working for you, that's the best possible world. You know, I I in the in my in my best dreams, I wanted this. I wanted people far smarter than me around me all the time because I knew we'd succeed. You know, I just wanted to unleash them and let them go. So, so don't, don't be jealous of other people. Be excited by other people and give them permission. So, so give them permission to be creative. Send positive information in the shadow that you're giving people. 
allow people to, to, to take risks, you know, set some boundaries, you know, say, hey, don't go too far because it's going to cost us something, it's going to ruin something, or it's going to destroy something, or it's going to hurt our customer relation or whatever. But, but give them the ability to, 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 you know, take some chances because it's, those, it's the same chance that if you're the person that created your company, you need to give people the same kind of chance you took when you created your company. You know, that, think how audacious that was to say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty smart. I can start a company. I can sell things and people will buy them. And they do. And so if they did that, then, then that's the kind of people you want working for you. Now, you want them working for you within a, within a, within a mission set. You don't, want, you don't want a bunch of independent operators out there. So your job is, is to say, okay, I want you really smart people, but we're, we're all going to be focused on this thing that we care about. And that's the thing. And, th and then that's what builds the, the beginnings of a foundation of a, of a real culture going forward. So, so I don't know. I like, I like people to be excited to come to work. I don't want them to come to work and feel bad about it. I don't want, them to, I don't want people to come to work just to get a paycheck because uh, if, if that's the case, they're not going to stay. You know, what is it? They, you know, every, every, any book you read about you know, why people leave jobs, it's always because of the, the person that they're working for or the people they're working with. It's never the money. You know, there's any, there's thousands of examples of people who take far lesser paying jobs and are much more satisfied. It's really about, you know, once you make enough money to take the issue of money off the table, then it's not an issue for people anymore. Uh, it's, it, people go to work because they want to feel engaged, creative, add, that they add value, and that the thing that they do matters. So your job is to make sure that what they do matters and that they feel important and that they feel engaged and part of it. And, uh, and, and then just stand back and watch great things happen. You know, I, that's, it, it, that sounds simple and rosy and, and like we should all be singing songs and holding hands. But, uh, but I tell you, it, it works. You know, it's amazing when you, when you just, when you activate people's excitement for something uh, and, you let them in, and you let them be part of, the, of, the, of, of how something is built, uh, it's astonishing what you see accomplished. And then maybe the military is one of the best examples of that because the examples are so out there. You can see them. But it's not the only place it happens. You know, I, it just happens to be my experience, so that's why I talk about it. But you know, now that I've been out in the private sector for a number of years, I, I can tell you I see, I see examples of it all around me in the private sector. I see examples at, uh, at, at your company, Luke. So it, um, it, if you, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a fun, and it's, plus it's more fun. It's a heck of a lot more fun to go to work with people who like being there than it is to go to work with people who just stare at you with their arms folded, you know, and, 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 <laughs> Truly. and say, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. That, that mission-centric team where everyone yeah. is yeah. gathers around that, that mission and they can trust how people are going to yeah. operate, what they're going to do, and that we're all doing it together. Yeah, and they know, they, and they know that, that their opinion matters too. That's what's fun. You know, they're not just carrying out you know, orders. Otherwise, then you're just, you're just like some of those, those, like those, some of those old movies on TV where you just, you know, punch the time clock and you punch the time clock out every day. So. No, and, and certainly that's not what anybody wants to create in terms of their culture. Well, I'd l love to just review a couple of things that I, that I really appreciate about what you've shared here. Uh, and some, some tidbits of wisdom that I captured. Uh, you talked about not observing lessons, but learning from them, really learning uh, and taking every lesson as an opportunity to grow. Uh, we talked about how we can, how when you make your promises, you keep them and you stand by those uh, fervently, even when you have an excuse not to. Uh, you talked about owning your mistakes and ensuring that everyone around you has permission to 
point them out and respectfully and to share with you and you invite that criticism. Another part that, uh, that I've heard <clears throat> that you've, you've shared here and that I've heard uh, talked about is people who've worked for you and who have so much respect for you and that you always find the problem. You're not looking for the blame. Uh, you aren't trying to find a scapegoat. And in recognizing that, your leaders have that shadow. And that shadow, there's a lot that's being communicated explicitly and inexplicitly uh, that has an impact on everyone around them. And finally, uh, one, of the, one of the big things here is ensuring that it's team-focused and that that mission-centric organization, ensuring that everybody's driving towards the same, the same goal but, uh, and doing so in a way that where you trust one another and how they're operating. Because at the end of the day, all you have is culture, and that culture is all that will remain after any single person le- leaves a company, no matter if they're a frontline worker, the, start, the person who started the company, or anyone in between. That is the core, too what makes a, co- a company successful without it. No company is successful without that strong culture and a, and a sustainable culture. So it's, it's just incredible to hear your experience here and to uh, just thank you. I thank you so much for sharing that with, with all of us and the lessons, the hard lessons you've learned over decades of your career, leading uh, some, some incredibly large and powerful and important organizations that keep everybody who comes through the United States and many around the world safe every single day. So thank you for your service and thank you for sharing this message with us and these lessons that you've learned. Well, Luke, thank you. And thanks, thanks, for, your, thanks for your interest and, and for, the, for the work that you're doing and, and, and for taking care of your folks. I know how much you do. So I, uh, I was more than happy to, to sit down and have a conversation with you. And, uh, and I hope it's been uh, of some interest to the folks who are listening. I absolutely assure you that it will be. Well, thank you so much, Peter, and we'll, uh, we'll sign off this uh, for now. But for all those listening, please join us next time to listen to the next episode of The Lockdown. All right. Thanks a lot, Luke. Take care. Thank you.